The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 886 for Monday, August 23rd, 2021. Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We share them. We mash it all together into an agenda, answering your questions, sharing your tips, sharing your cool stuff found such that we can accomplish our it's a system. It's not a goal. It's a system so that we each learn five new things every week, no matter what, no matter what. It's just how it happens. All you got to do is show up. That's your part in the system. Well, your part in the system is also sending in your questions, your tips, and your cool stuff found. But, you know, the system works. It's been proven. And that's the goal is each and every one of us learns five new things. Every single, every single, every single time we get together. Uh, our sponsor for this episode is upstart.com slash MGG, which is a cool little service that we will talk about in uh, in a few minutes here. For now, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here, battening down the hatches because we're probably getting a hurricane. Or by the time people have heard this, we have had a hurricane. Yep. Uh, in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's something coming through New England. We record this on Fridays usually and uh, release on Mondays. So hopefully the weekend goes well for all of us here. And then we'll be, uh, for those of you that like to be involved in the live stream, you can subscribe to the calendar at macgeekgab.com slash calendar so that you know when we are recording. And the next episode, 887, will actually be recorded on Tuesday, the 24th, because we've got some, uh, I've got to go to Oregon to drop my son off at school. So we figure we record ahead of time so that I'm not having to, uh, I mean, I'm going to bring a mic on the road with me because I always do. It's sort of in the podcaster's tricks and tools of the trade but uh you know we'd like to make sure this show is well polished at least as well as it can be jp likes to have a uh well polished show as well and he has sent in a little quick tip for us john which i will play fellers it's jp i finally have a cool stuff found which you probably already know about but i just stumbled upon the other day i use siri a lot in my uh car car play when i'm driving and I'm always uh, uh, dictating texts and sending and reading texts and all that stuff. Uh, but uh, so I thought I need to send a voice text. So instead of uh, opening the Voxer app, which I normally use for walkie talkie style act because I don't like the Apple where you have to hold the button down in messages just to talk. I literally said, uh, hey, Siri, send a voice message. And she came up uh, and said, uh, who would you like to send it to? And I say who it is. And then she says, recording. And I talk and it records my little voice message. And it places it in the uh, outgoing text. And, and, you know, she asked, do I want to send it? And I go, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I mean, quickie way to not have to hold that button down. Uh, while you talk on the voice, uh, you know, voice texting feature of the messages app. So. That's cool, man. Yeah, I tried it. And actually, um, uh, if 
the person you want to send it to has multiple phone numbers. It'll ask which phone number you want to uh, send it to. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I tried sending myself one, and it's like, oh, dude, you want to send it to this number or that number? Because I have multiple phone numbers. Oh, interesting. Many of us. Huh. I guess, okay, because, I, I you know, we talked, uh, I don't know, uh, six weeks ago, let's say, about how I was using a similar functionality uh, not a voice message, but I'd say Siri send myself a message and then I would dictate a text message and it never asked me which number to send to, but text messages are sent via iMessage, which sort of goes into that whole, you know, unified person queue. So I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But a voice message, huh? And, and did it come like, how did it come through? Did it come through as a, as an iMessage? Yeah. Interesting. I wonder why it's asking with an audio attachment. Right, right, right. I'm wondering why it's asking for the number there and not when you're sending a message. Did you try it with other people? Although I've tried, I mean, I do it with myself literally all the time. No, oh. I'll have to try it. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I'll have to try it. I'll, I'll try sending you one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. All right. Fun. Huh? Thanks, JP. Thanks, John. All right, uh, listener Mike has a quick tip for us, too. He says, for Dropbox users, my recommendation is to never store your Dropbox folder on a Dropbox folder on an external disk. One day, I came into work to find that tens of thousands of files were missing from my Dropbox. In a, panics, in a panic, I got on the phone with Dropbox support uh, because we have a business account. After an hour or so, the friendly support person asked, by chance, do you have a machine that has its Dropbox folder on an external hard drive? Why, yes, I do. My home office iMac has that. So it turns out if a machine reboots and the or the Dropbox app launches, which often happens at reboot, and the external hard drive has failed to mount or for any reason disappears, Dropbox will or may think that you have deleted the files in the folder and then begin the process of removing them from everywhere. Of course, they were able to roll back to a previous date without much more drama. But uh, he said when he got home that evening, uh, sure enough, he realized his external hard drive was down. That's interesting. So I have always often, I think, and at the moment, store my Dropbox folder, at least on one of my machines. I think I store it on an external drive. That's an interesting little conundrum there. Yeah. Yeah, because I like sometimes, you know, if you get a lot of stuff in there, it's like, yeah, sync it over there. It's like not I don't really use Dropbox for mission critical stuff anymore. I used to, but now I've actually used Synology Drive for that. That's interesting. He says, so the question is, I would like to make a system wide permanent setting that instructs the finder to always list the folder contents in alphabetical order. Oh, that's a different question. And I don't think there is a way, but. Uh, you know what? I, I I didn't intend to read that, but I will. It's a we'll leave that as a geek challenge. But but first, John, any uh, any thoughts on this Dropbox thing? Um, I was trying to check it out on this machine, and yep. Dropbox isn't running. And when I tried to launch it, it said it can't. So my Dropbox is acting up. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, Dropbox. The application Dropbox can't be opened. Huh? Well, it sounds like you have a different problem. Huh? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could like set up your own launch agent, right? I'm glad we learned how to do that recently and use that to um, 
only launch the Dropbox app when a certain drive is mounted. I, I, I wonder if you could do that with a launch agent. I know you can do that with keyboard maestro. So you certainly could have a keyboard maestro script that only launches the Dropbox app. If a, the Dropbox app is not running and B, you know, that external volume is mounted. Otherwise don't run the Dropbox app. So that would be a, a way around that perhaps. Yeah. yeah. There's a Dropbox folder. Huh? Well, the Dropbox folder is always there. It's just whether or not yeah, the yeah. app is pointed at it and syncing, right? That, that's sort of, yeah. Yeah. So it has a file folder as the, uh, as the icon, whereas right. on this machine, it has the Dropbox. Well, that makes sense because that icon only changes when you are, have right, the app right. running. Yeah. Well, it sounds so like you maybe do some debugging. Maybe need to reinstall the app. That, that yes. would be step one. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. All right. So uh, we might as well ask Mike's geek challenge here. He uh, he said, I'd like to make a system wide permanent setting that instructs the finder to always list folder contents in alphabetical order, no matter how I last left it or how Mac OS thinks I want to see it based on the frequency that I access certain folders. Uh, I don't know that there is an answer to this, but um, but since I didn't leave myself a note not to read this part of the question, which I usually do. Uh, then I am reading it. So I, I I'm like my thought on this was Pathfinder is, you know, use something hmm. different than the finder. And maybe you can set more specific, you know, parameters and guidelines for the way folders are displayed. But the finder very much, you know, remembers what you did last time. And that's how it that's how it be. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any automation utilities that could go and change that for you back. I don't know. Feedback at MacGeekCab.com. If anybody has an idea, do you have an idea, John? Do you have something to send in to feedback at MacGeekCab.com? Um, I think you said feedback at MacGeekCab.com. Um, how about, uh, a better finder attributes? Mm. Uh, I, I think that just it. enhances the Finder, right? A better finder attribute. I think that's. Is that does that even still exist anymore? Yeah. Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But is it like the screenshots? Uh, I guess maybe it doesn't work with Big Sur. That would be my question. That would be the first question. Mm. Um, I think this is just for seeing. Uh, allows you to change JPEG raw and video content creation dates, EXIF data, deal with invisible files. You can edit creation and modification dates. I don't think it changes the way correct finder. Oh, it corrects for sorting by setting the dates correctly. So yeah, I don't mm -hmm. think it's, I don't think it's messing with the interface of the finder more that it's giving you a deeper ability to edit things like metadata that exists in the finder. Mm -hmm. Which is, a, you know, also a good utility to know about. So we will definitely put it in the show notes. Uh, but I don't think it's the answer here. Huh. All right. Well, if you let us, if, if you know, feedback at MacGeekUp.com. We'd love to hear mm -hmm. from you. All right. You want to take us to Timothy, my friend? Yes, Timothy. Here's a forgotten tip. I had no idea how I enabled this function, but I did. And it's proven to be a handy trick in a lot of MacGyver type situations. I love the old world keyboard and wired mouse, and I still have mine somewhere, but I have now accumulated about 10 each of magic keyboards and magic mice, 
or magic mises, mouses. Uh, and between USB, USB A and USB C and the timing of getting caught, I have a specced out 2018 Mac mini and my main home computer. And at some point I enabled the keyboard viewer from random blog outs that OS 10 does when I overload the system to the ever frequent Mac mini only Bluetooth anomalies that occur at the worst times, having the ability to enable a floating keyboard from the menu bar of me troubleshooting or password entry a breeze. Having heard similar, have heard several situations lately that reminded me of my virtual magic keyboard that had me saying out loud keyboard viewer, duh, when driving and listening to the podcast, I felt I needed to email in and remind you about this feature. Pretty sure it could come in handy in some headless scenarios where accessing remotely using a mouse. Maybe not the best use case scenario, but at least enabling it and having it as an option eliminates the variable of not being able to enter text uh, when you get caught. Another nerd arrow for the geek quiver. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, that's um I oh, like and that. I got a bonus tip. Okay, go. Bonus. Um so yeah, there there's um in accessibility you can select the accessibility keyboard, Dave, but uh, a bonus tip, rather than going to system preferences, accessibility keyboard, enable accessibility keyboard. Yeah. There's another path that offers an additional option. System preferences keyboard show input menu. And then what you'll see in the menu bar, you'll have two options, show keyboard viewer, but also show emoji and symbols. Right. Right. Um, okay. And that one, you can also, uh, and how do you get emoji and symbols? Well, that's control command space. Command control space. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's one that my fingers know very well. So, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah. Putting it in the menu, if especially if you run into this a lot, putting it in the menu would be the um would be a good place to to have it. Yeah. I like it. Cool. All right. You want to take us uh Stevens uh, our yes. final quick tip that might not be yes. so quick. <laughs> yes. Um just got just got through over a year of kernel panics. And I thought I would share this saga. I have a 2019 Intel iMac. Like I'm guessing many people do. I bought it with only eight gigs with plans to upgrade with OWC RAM at a more affordable cost. I added 16 gigs of RAM for a total of 24. Sometime later, I experienced the kernel panic with the help of Apple support. We reinstalled the OS from recovery mode. I went about my business, had another kernel panic. And this time we did a complete nuke and pave. After yet another kernel panic and escalating to Apple engineering, the recommendation was to remove the extra RAM. Um, this was not the answer I wanted. I contacted ODBC and they walked me through testing the RAM using a memory test tool, which reported the RAM was fine. I did remember hearing tips about the order of RAM and tried multiple iterations, none of which ended up making a difference. Uh, finally, out of frustration, I simply took it to my local genius bar and said, please look uh, at anything and everything. After about a week, they confessed they could not identify any hardware or software errors, nor could they replicate the kernel panic. The only thing they saw in their testing tool was the RAM was non-matched. In a final act of desperation, I bought another 16 gigs of RAM from OWC. Uh, since then, no errors. It's been over three months now, and that one change made all the difference. So... I didn't think RAM needed to be matched in pairs. Yeah, I was looking. I, I thought Apple had a support article talking about this, but I couldn't find it. Um, 
I mean, I, I know because I have either the same iMac or something similar. Like th- this iMac that I used to record the show is a 2019. And I I chose to do two. I mean, there's four slots. And so I have two fours mm-hmm. in here and two 16s in here. Uh, and I did it that way with the, the matching and the balancing because I remembered reading somewhere for this model that while you don't need to do it that way, when you do, it's faster. You know, it, it, it whatever it can take advantage of interleaving or something. Now, I could be wrong yes. about that. Right. But no, no, you're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interleaving gives you more memory performance. Okay. Okay. I think it, it yeah, I think it, it, it makes the memory bus larger or something like something that. Something like, yeah, there was something about that. Yeah, exactly. So, but I didn't think it was mandatory, right? Like I could just have a four and a 16 and in theory it would work, but it sounds like at least with his 2019 iMac, that's not mm-hmm. the case. Fascinating solution. And weird that the Genius Bar, like the fact that the Genius Bar identified that as a problem to be solved tells me that it's not just his 2019 iMac. Like, like that that they have seen either at that specific Genius Bar or via some, you know, internal knowledge base article, service bulletin mm-hmm. or something at Apple that it is a a known issue to some people at Apple, if not mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So the moral of the story, and I remember long ago, um, every now and then that Apple does something weird with their firmware. I remember one time it was uh, one, one of my old MacBook Pros. Yep. Um, and I had non-Apple RAM in it. And all of a sudden they did a firmware update and the machine would crash right and left. Oh, oh, yeah, right. That was remember I mean, that, and and every, then everybody started yelling at Apple, saying, "Why, why did you, why did you make this change?" Yeah, they tightened the tolerance or something. Mm-hmm. That was like, I want to say that was twenty years ago, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I had it was on my Pismo PowerBook, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is what it was called at the time. Pismo PowerBook. That that, that word, th- those words feel right together. Anyway, yeah, and I remember I had Ramjet RAM in there, and they. Um, I don't even know if Ramjet is Ramjet anymore, but anyway, I had Ramjet Ram in there and they, you know, replaced it with Ram that matched Apple specs. And I, I know OWC did the same thing at the, at the time too, but yeah, mm-hmm. it was, that was a good, that was a good test, uh litmus test for how good your Ram vendor actually is with their lifetime warranty. So, mm-hmm. you know, fun. Uh, I've got a fun one moving into cool stuff found here for our developer friends. Uh, Jason sends in Showtime, which is a framework that you bake into your iOS app that makes it easy to show off all your iOS taps and gestures for demos and all of your demo videos that you want to build. So uh, if you want to do it that way, uh, then Showtime is the uh, is the framework to go go check out. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Thanks, Jason. I know you can also do this by like sharing the screen with ScreenFlow, I have I have made uh, demos like this too, where it shows like what's happening. So, um, and I and I think I think the simulator will also show those, and you can capture that and record it for a movie. So, so lots of options. But um, but yeah, there you go. Thanks, Jason. You got one for us, John? Uh, Patrick. Uh, has has a nice one here. 
Just wanted to remind you both um, and listeners that a great way to not get caught is to use Langenti Software's Batch Mod to check on permissions of folders and files and get them in order. It is free, but it is so worth a donation. I highly recommend one pay something, at least in my humble opinion, of course. And uh, yep, sure enough, um, I thought we had mentioned it. At some I think point, we but have, it, but it's been anything. a while. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, let's see. Uh, but, you know, uh, it'll show you permissions and uh, extended attributes and uh, all sorts of other um, interesting things regarding a particular file or directory, I would think. Interesting. I wonder, I haven't used this. I, I, I know we, we know about it, uh, but we haven't used it before. I'm wondering from you folks out there who have used this, how it compares to the thing that we mentioned earlier, a better finder attributes. Like, are they... Are they the same? How do they compare? I would I would love to know. So, yeah, we'll put links to both, of course, in the show notes. Thanks, Patrick. Good stuff. We got questions. We actually have a lot of follow-ups to go through, so we'll do that. Uh, well, not quite next, because next what I want to do is tell you about our sponsor, which is Upstart, where, as I said at the beginning of the show, upstart.com slash MGG is where you go. And the idea is this. Look, if you're carrying your credit card balance month after month, that can feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt, right? That's where Upstart comes in because Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, and you get to do it all online. So whether it is paying off those credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. And What's cool is Upstart knows that you're more than just your credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit because unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and your current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. And you do all this with a five minute online rate check and you get to see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. And you can receive those funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash MGG. That's upstart.com slash MGG. Don't forget to use our URL because that's how you let them know we sent you loan amounts will be determined based upon your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Of course, go to upstart.com slash MGG and our thanks to upstart for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's go to uncle P here. Uncle P has, uh, has a follow-up for us on the YouTube TV versus Fubo TV he says, uh, I wanted to chime in. And make your intuition feel correct. I have paid for and used to some degree all of the streaming TV services. I travel for work and I'm highly invested in the Apple ecosystem, which includes several Apple TVs. I've been paying for YouTube TV for several years now, mainly due to the points you highlighted, the DVR and the Apple TV app. The dedicated Chrome Mac app for the OS X dock or the Mac OS dock is a nice quick access feature when I travel and do not feel like going through Mac address spoofing to use an Apple TV in a hotel. But for the features you describe, the reason I continue to pay for the service, the user interface rocks. Now, 
Fubo TV is a service I have been paying for as well since I figured out while traveling that YouTube TV does not offer the Weather Channel. So I pay for Fubo TV only to access the Weather Channel. Okay, a lot of people pay for Fubo only for the sports, but hey, you know, like that's the thing is Fubo's channel lineup does seem to best YouTube TVs. He says, my traveling profession uh, is cleaning up after disasters. So the Weather Channel is a must for consistency for uh, info on the fly. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why they are not a part of every lineup or offer standalone access for a fee. Perhaps I am missing something. If I am, it's due to their inability to make it obvious to the consumer who wants to give them money. Either way, this backs up your thoughts that their channel lineup is a superior product to YouTube TV. Plus, YouTube TV only lets you, and this is an interesting thing I have not experienced yet, but I'm sure I will. YouTube TV only lets you change your home market a few times per year before they lock you out of access to the TV that you pay for and then make you call in. I hate calling in anywhere, says Uncle P. So I find myself using Fubo on the road since they don't mess with me and they offer the Weather Channel live TV and access to regional sports without restricting me by saying I'm out of my home TV market. No kidding. I'm the one paying for the hotel. I know I'm out of my home TV market. I still want to watch my stuff, he says. So I wish I could join the two, but I also pay for Apple TV Plus, Netflix, Amazon Prime, etc. Too much disposable income, perhaps, he says. But I think we find ourselves still in the pregnant moments of everyone trying to lure you into their product. And for now, the features and benefits are too widespread. The takeaway YouTube TV is the best and most user friendly as long as you log in from time to time and record the shows or sports items that you want to be in your DVR. Fubo has the best lineup and doesn't mess with you while traveling. So this is interesting. I also, um, and it was based on, thank you, Uncle P. Um, it was based on somebody else's comment that Fubo's Apple TV app is better. We were messing with it uh, last night when I, I figured, well, we got to, you know, we got to keep this test going. So I used, instead of using my smart TVs app, which for Fubo is awful on, on LG's WebOS, it's just, it's just very, very basic, but the Apple TV app, so long as you're using the Apple TV remote does have a 10 second skip forward and backwards. And for Fubo TV, this is also, if you do the scrub thing where you, you know, you hit the middle of the Apple TV remote and then you can scrub back and forth there, you actually get to see, thumbnails as you're as you're scrolling so there's that it was a little weird watching we put on the uh patriots preseason game because i figured that was a good way to test this and the scrubbing was kind of working but it was also working while the thing was recording we were able to start it from the beginning before the program had ended so it seems like fubo is evolving their platform pretty quickly here and uh and may wind up. I mean, they they definitely have the best channel lineup. So if uh, if they can get their user experience together, which it seems like they're working on, they like a year from now, we might be having a very different conversation. Of course, I feel like over the next year, I might wind up paying for both YouTube TV and Fubo TV, which sort of I was going to say it, it, it causes me to lose money based on my cord cutting. But it doesn't like I think that would I think I'm saving about $70 a month by only going with one of them based on what I was doing with Comcast before. So having dropped Comcast completely for both Internet and TV and obviously phone, but we did that years ago. Uh, it, but just Internet and TV by dropping them and going to consolidated for the fiber, 
and then, uh, you know, 70 bucks a month for a streaming TV service. We're saving about 70 bucks a month. So if for the next year I wind up paying for both Fubo and YouTube TV, well, it's a business expense, isn't it? Because we have to test this stuff for all of you and uh, and keep you posted. But I'm hoping that within the next year, one of these two services will actually be able to deliver for us. Uh, either YouTube TV will get their act back together with their channel lineup uh, or Fubo will get their act together with their user experience and user interfaces, which it seems like the latter is more likely than the former, but you never know. YouTube TV is Google. They could, they could move very quickly. They have a lot of money. And so you never know, but uh, we'll keep you posted. Thanks uncle P for the, uh, for the updates. Good stuff. John, you, you have a follow-up or any thoughts on that before we uh, move on to no. Allison? I know no. you're, you're like, you're dancing on the edges of potentially cutting your cable cord, right? No. Oh, I thought you were thinking about going to, to fiber for your internet. Oh, uh, way faster, way cheaper. I'm happy. I'm happy with what I got. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, but that's, that's not, that's not living on the bleeding edge, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's complacency. We are bleeding edge here. No, there, there are a lot of people. Actually, we had a, it, it did go out though. I think everything would have gone out, but we actually lost power at like, three in the morning okay yesterday. and your internet went out right away well i didn't have oh you don't have power power to my cable modem, yeah 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 so. no that right when when we've lost power and and fired up the generator most of the time our cable signal has been alive and i'm told <laughs> that consolidated you know with the fiber would be the same way because they have generators at all the, you know, at all the head ends. But yes, you, you need to power your cable modem or your, your ONT in order to have that access yeah. and your router, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Though, um, though I was able to still uh, surf the internet at three in the morning, I just used my phone instead <laughs> right. as a hotspot. <clears throat> sure. Of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. yeah, because actually, yeah, my laptop was like, uh oh, you're, you know, what I just connected to went away. Do you want to connect to your phone? And I'm like, yeah, it's a good idea. That's a good idea. Yeah, three in the morning. <laughs> no, no sense sleeping <laughs> when we can be on the internet some way. That's the yeah. sign. That's what I'm talking about. Living on the bleeding edge, right there. I love it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, Allison um, did a little experiment for us. Um, I heard you talking on this week's show about trying to figure out which email address sent an email on iOS. I've been struggling with this, too, since we can't see the header. Someone suggested I tap on the from name and then look for which address said recent in the tag next to it. Like you, I was happy for this solution. Um, but as I listened to you talk about it, I got to be wondering about whether recent really means recent, not this email actually came from this address. I have three email addresses, which helped me set up an experiment. I sent two emails to my .Mac email. The first was from my Podfeet domain, and the second was from my Gmail address. I tapped on the first one to come in, and when tapping on the from name, it showed the vCard and showed the Podfeet address tagged with recent, as expected. When the second email arrived, the Gmail address was tagged with recent. But when I went back to the first email to come in, the recent tag had moved to my Gmail address, even though that mail was sent from the Podfeet address. So recent does not necessarily tell you the address from which the email comes in. It's simply telling you the most recent address from which you received an email. Um, and then a follow-up to this. So thanks for uh, for the experiment there. Um, 
Jeremy, I think it was Jeremy, suggested the following. Uh, rather than trying to divine the address when viewing the all inboxes of you, select the individual mailbox in iOS mail. Right? Well, sort of right. I have a few things to comment on here. Oh, yes. The, the, well, the first is, is that the premise of Allison's experiment is not the same as the discussion that we had last week because Allison is looking for the address from which an email came. And of course, by sending it to herself, she's also confusing mail by having from and to being the same person, albeit with different addresses. Uh. However, what we were talking about was trying to figure out the address to which an email was sent. Like which of my addresses did you use when you sent this email to me? And for that, I've because I've done this experiment and it has worked flawlessly uh, as I bounce around from email to email. But again, th like the th last week's discussion was was about the emails coming into us, not where it came from, the where it came from. I'm not sure. Like Allison's email, maybe her pod feed address. No, I don't know. Uh, to my dot Mac address. OK, so maybe her dot Mac address isn't included in that. So maybe that experiment was valid. It's possible it was uh, that it's not telling you the right from address and that's getting confused to confirm for me that it is coming that that recent is showing correctly for my address. The one to which the email was sent, uh, I reply to the message and mail on iOS, right, will reply from the address to which it was sent. So that's another way to test it. And honestly, now that I say this out loud, that might even be faster than trying to tap on it and scroll through the contact record and look for the recent thing. Just just hit reply and boom, it'll show it to you. Um, it usually gets that right. Iowa, but to be fair, iOS doesn't always get that right. Um, the and and Jeremy's solution I like, but is only valid if you again, Jeremy's is about the question we discussed last week, not about Allison's thing. Uh, it's you know about the two address. Jeremy's only works if you have one email address per inbox. You and me, John, I know both have lots of email addresses for any one inbox. For example, both feedback at and premium at MacGeekGab.com. For us, I believe each come into the same inbox and then we filter uh, by, you know, by mail headers to, to kind of so we know who to prioritize. Because those of you who contribute, we uh, we answer your emails first. For the premium program at MacGeekUp.com slash premium. So, but it's, this is a good, a good thing. It, it highlights the fact that all I want to do is see mail headers on iOS sometimes for mm -hmm. the love of Pete. Like, how mm -hmm. do I do that? I wonder, I need to start looking at third-party email apps because that may be the answer here mm. is wire up a third-party email app to my IMAP account and turn off all the notifications so that it's like not driving me crazy. But when I need to see headers, maybe that's the way to do it. So if anybody knows of a third-party email app for iOS that shows me mail headers, feedback at MacGeekUp.com. Or if you're a premium listener, premium at MacGeekUp.com. Or if you're the truck driver that is going by John's house right now while we're doing this, use your horn and Morse code that sucker to us because that's another way to get to us. Yeah, they're doing some heavy construction. Yeah, man. Street. Yeah, man. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. All right. Um, Want to take us to Andrew? Yeah. So um, 
Just listen to your discussion about air tags. Apple said not to put an air tag on pets. Bollocks. <laughs> um, I've had one of my dogs since they came out, and it has come to the rescue several times. I picked up a silicon holder for it from Amazon for five bucks, and that attaches easily to the dog's collar. It doesn't bother him. He goes in the surf every day with it. Um, and when he goes off the reservation, he gets caught. Um, he's in Australia, so that's why he said bollocks. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's waterproof. So, uh, yeah. Um, you know, the thing is, I couldn't find anything specifically prohibiting the use of an air tag to track people or pets on their webpage. I did find this snippet from an interview with Kyan Drance, Apple's VP of Worldwide iPhone Product Marketing. Uh, it's an article at Fast Company. Uh, how Apple designed air tags to be privacy first and stalker proof. And I found this um, uh, paragraph. Uh, uh, when I asked Drance about parents using air tags to track their small children, such as during an outing at an amusement park, or pets, we know you're up to something shady, Fluffy. She was quick to stress that the company designed the air tag to track items, not people or pets. If parents would like to safely track their young children, she suggests an Apple Watch with family setup might be a better choice and makes them more money, right? Mm, right. <laughs> um, uh, but from what I've seen, Dave, the Find My Network is pretty darn good. Yeah. So, um, so while for a child, Apple Watch may be a better choice, I don't think Fido would benefit for one versus an air tag. Uh, Andrew sent in a couple of pictures of, uh, his uh, dog collar air tag holder thing. And so I found yeah. something on Amazon that matches that and we'll, uh, and we'll put a link in the show notes to, uh, to that for us. But, um, it's, uh, I mean, it's, so your air tag is a, it's a, a dog track, right? Not not mm -hmm. not that kind of dog track. It's a dog tag. Okay, it's a dog. Aha. Uh -huh. Oh, I like this. That's right. Yes. Not that kind of dog track. A dog tag. Maybe they maybe they should make a special one called the dog tag. I mean, I wonder I wonder if um yeah, it's interesting. Like I wonder why they would care. Like why Apple would would have said anything about that. Well, like I said, they follow they, the money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Oh, well, for, I, for I a child, think... the Apple Watch nets Apple more money, for sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah, plus they don't want people trying to sew these things to their kids, so, you know. I do like having them in my luggage. Like I said, my, for that last trip I did, it, it was way more granular and way more frequently updated than Tile ever was. So Apple really has a, a thing here, but... But Tile is partnering with, you know, with Amazon and others. So it, uh, we may, we, I don't think we've seen the last of them. I think, I think they're, I think they're moving on. But yeah, you can get four of these little dog. It's what's interesting, John, <laughs> this, this page that uh, I found on Amazon here. It's the Surapow uh, for AirTag dog collar holder. And it's four of them for 10 bucks, which is great. Uh, and it shows a picture of a dog with a collar and the AirTag. And then also it shows a picture of a parent with a young child. So I don't know what they're trying to imply by these pictures, my friend, but I think I know what they're trying to imply by these pictures. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not like it's going to harm your child or your dog. As long as you don't sew it to them. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree with that. All right. And as long as they don't swallow it. Ah, that could be the reason. Yeah. 
Yeah, that would be. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suppose that it, it is. I mean, it's large. It would definitely be a choking hazard if you. Is it a choking hazard? Like, is it? There is a size of things. And when I when I was a younger man and more specifically, when my children were much younger, I probably could have told you what the size was where things had to be labeled a choking hazard be above a certain size. No, below a certain size. Yes. My guess is air tags are not below that size because they don't say choking hazard all over the box. I don't recall that, but I wonder if that's part of what Apple's trying to dance around here is, is yeah. I don't know. Cause no, I think it's, it would be, you know, it's funny. Um, recently I bought some, um, uh, CR 26, uh, CR 2032 batteries. Sure. And they have a sticker on them. Uh, number one, they're really hard to open. Um, but they also have a sticker on it and it shows a little baby and it says choking hazard and you have to peel it off to, I guess, acknowledge that you realize that that battery is a choking hazard. And that's what I'm saying. The AirTags don't have that on them. You're absolutely right that the AirTags battery is small enough to be considered a choking hazard. But I think the AirTag itself is big enough that it is it is above that that threshold. And I'm looking at the how to reset your AirTag uh, knowledge base article. And indeed, at the bottom of it, there's a warning. The battery cover. Oh, wait. Nope. Here it is. You're totally right. AirTag, the battery cover. And the battery itself might present a choking hazard. So there it is. Yes, that's yep. Good call. Good call. All right. All right. All right. Moving on. Um, I'm going to change this order here Thank slightly. You. Okay. Um, uh, because the, 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 sure. the, you'll see why. Um, so Allison. Hello again, Allison. <laughs> um, says you asked whether anyone out there uses Qi charging most of the time for their iPhone. You can count Steve and me on that list. The reason it works pretty flawlessly for us is because we use easel chargers, not the ones flat to a table. With an easel, the charger coils are automatically lined up. We even have Qi easel chargers in our cars. The only time I've had a problem is when I use that stupid MagSafe Duo charger that is super finicky about the size of the power supply being 20 watts or higher. I had it plugged into a 100-watt charger. Both Steve added his watch charger to the same power supply, and that stopped the MagSafe Duo from working with my watch. So, Qi on an easel for the win. Okay? Yeah, I can I'd see like, that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I like... Um, yeah, I think you and I both have the uh, the Ventev uh, easel Qi charger. That's a nice one, and you can uh, reorient and move the, the thing around for maximum... Uh, maximum uh, uh coverage yeah that's right yeah 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 cool uh yeah i'll i'll use chi when available but i do understand yeah the, i've i've had that happen uh when i try to put it on the magsafe charger that sometimes it doesn't engage properly yep yep yeah, for sure a little finicky yeah and um though something may be hitting the market soon that'll fix that dave and that's all i'm going to say about that Okay. All right. Good to know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, what else? Um, of course, uh, the other piece of feedback I have here is um, uh, if you want maximum power, then charging via lightning is, is the way to go. Just let people know. 
Oh, of course. Oh, well, and and as we said last week, charging via lightning from a power delivery USB-C based charger is really the way to go. Not mm-hmm. just lightning, because lightning could be limited to, you know, five volts on a on a USB-A, you know, non-power IQ device. But if you go, if you want maximum power, get get a USB-C to lightning cable and plug it in to a, I think 18 watt or above is what your iPhone, like I don't think anything above 18 watts is going to make your iPhone charge any faster. I mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, getting a power delivery source and, and using that. Yeah. That's, that's your fastest path for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, David says, um, I've been charging my iPhone eight plus via Chi for a while now. It started when I got a Toyota Prius hybrid in May, 2019 that has a chi pad below the center console. Then last year, I got an anchor charging stand for my desk that charges the iPhone, AirPods, and Apple Watch all via chi. So there's a data point or datum for you. Nice. Cool. And I'm sure we'll be putting all those links in the show notes, right, John? Mm-hmm. Sweet. All right. Thank you, Wait. Allison and David. Oh, you mean the uh, the chargers? Yeah, the ones that they mentioned. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Because um, that's what we do. Hey, Kansas Dave gives us a follow-up from the uh, the child uh, hazard, choking hazard thing. And he says it's one and a quarter inches is the magic size. Uh, so I will trust you, Kansas Dave. That sounds about right. Sounds right to me. I'm not going to say it sounds about right. It sounds right to me. But it's been a while since I've had to uh, been actively aware of these things. So... All right. Um, yeah. Listener Mark asks, uh, it's time to go to some questions here. And listener Mark says, I'm looking for your suggestions on a Wi-Fi router replacement. My current router after a storm is dishing out IPs, which are not part of the DCP scope. Uh, and I think it's time to upgrade. My wishes are this. I could separate my IOT devices from my uh, personal devices. I can do that via a guest network, but I want to logically separate them as far as I can uh, for speed. Uh, we are typical cord cutters here. So we have Plex, we have Sling, we have Netflix users in the house. Expandability. Uh, the router is in the basement, but devices are used on the second floor and the backyard deck. Uh, I want above average user experience and tools. I'm not your average desk jockey and have IT geeky skill sets. I'm happy to mix it up and get nerdy. Nice. And he says, I'm not trusting of Amazon or Google. So I'd prefer to stay away from their offerings. Hopefully, hopefully this list isn't too daunting. I've been looking uh, into this and some of the, uh, ubiquity devices and the TP-Link AX uh, 1100. My budget is less of a concern in order to get the right solution. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So looking at all that, yeah, I think you're heading down the right path looking at ubiquity, uh, specifically Unify. I will say this. I know you don't like Amazon. I will say that both Eero and Plume, which is not an Amazon company, uh, Plume is, I believe, currently still just plume uh they have partnerships with like comcast they provide the pods for comcast the the those what do they call them john the um 
whatever they are, the access points, the mesh points that, that Comcast will put in your house for you. If you, if you like, uh, they put those, uh, but, but plume is separate, but both Eero and plume, as far as consumer, you know, focused solutions work extremely well. They have all of the internal smarts that you're going to want in a mesh system. They're not just dumb mesh systems that, that leave it all up to the device. They're actually doing some of the smart things inside them. So that is for sure a path to go with. Um, my theory on Eero and the Amazon acquisition is this. When Eero was a scrappy startup that was, you know, the venture funded or whatever, I was going to say self-funded, but I don't think they were. I think they were venture funded. And if they had some sort of data breach where the aggregated information about your network or even specific information about your network was uh, unintentionally divulged, I think we probably would have given them a pass. They would have said, we're a small, scrappy startup. We moved fast. We broke things. We're sorry. And many of us, I think, would have said, yes, cool. Like, you're doing cool things. You're living on the bleeding edge. We get it. If that happens and it's Amazon who is on the hook for it, I think that's a far worse outcome uh, from a PR standpoint. And I think Amazon knows it. So I think our data is even safer now that it's Amazon data, but it could be aggregated even within the Amazon ecosystem. So maybe we start getting Amazon product recommendations for things that they know about us because of Eero. I haven't seen that yet, but certainly that's a possibility. I share that. Uh, However, Unify, based on uh, Mark's description here, I think that's the way to go. That's from Ubiquity. Uh, it is their, I'll call it their prosumer and up system, because you certainly can do really, you know, high end enterprise systems with Unify. But it also works very well in a home, you know, or a, a prosumer or small office environment. I really like the, the Unify stuff. For, for that. And it has lots of great geeky tools and lots of great options. You're not just stuck with here is our one uh, access point. You know, they have different access points for different purposes. They've got outdoor stuff. They've got indoor stuff. They've got, you know, two by two access points. If you only need a, a small room, they've got four by four access points, which is what I would recommend in a home because you're going to be wanting to go through walls and probably not put access points in each room and things like that. So get the stronger ones for that and save yourself the the hassle of trying to, you know, manage multiple points. But it is a cool system and it is really fun to manage. So the ubiquity stuff is definitely the way to go. I think so, Mark. So I don't know if you have any other uh, any, any other thoughts on that. But um, Mr. Braun, no thoughts, no thoughts. All right. Uh, the um, Kansas Dave in the chat room says uh, echoes his thoughts that he's happy with Euro. He's got the Wi-Fi 6 version. And he said, while on the phone with Eero Support, they discovered my network loop, which is a handy thing to discover because sometimes they're not obvious. So, yeah, yeah, it's um, more and more of us having loops these days, John. It's how it goes. All right. Shall we move on? Please. All right. Christopher uh, brings us a question. He says, my issue is because of the new Apple Mail features, I'm considering moving and using Apple Mail for all of my emails. But there is a problem. When I compose an email and send it to Gmail, it does not display in the original format. Uh, and he showed us that his email was uh, the, the font size of that text was much smaller when it appeared on Gmail than when he sent it in Apple Mail. 
What is up with this? And yeah, you're not alone here. And this isn't necessarily an Apple mail issue. It's just a mail issue using different email clients, especially when you're sending HTML email. It's going to be interpreted differently on each device or each email client, even on the same device. Uh, And so because of that, John, I have for years made it a habit to send all of my mail as plain text, which you can set for default for new messages. You go into mail, go to preferences and go to message format and you can set it to plain text. Uh, That's great for um, for creating new messages. Sometimes, though, when there's another setting, Uh, if you go into uh, the um, oh, where is it? Uh, oh, on that same on that same page, on that same preference pane, the composing message or the composing pane, uh, there is another checkbox that says use the same message format as the original message. I highly recommend checking that box, and the reason is if you don't, it will default every message to, in my case, plain text because that's what I've set it to. A lot of times, that's actually what I want. But if I'm replying to or forwarding an HTML message that actually has a lot of formatting, like a newsletter or things like that, it will blow all that away. And it's not the most optimal thing. So what I do is I leave that box checked. So if I reply to, you know, John sends me an HTML email, which he rarely does uh, because he sends in plain text, too. But uh, if you were to send me an HTML email, John, and I replied to you, my reply would be in HTML at the start, unless I changed it. But if I go to the format menu and choose make plain text or hit command shift T, which my fingers know all too well, it changes the entire message. It toggles it between plain text and rich text. So command shift T is the way to get rid of that. And when I'm replying to people that don't have any formatting or special things in their email, I always revert the message to plain text so that they are getting my reply in whatever their native font is. I like to make sure people have a nice experience reading emails from me. And the best experience is them getting email in whatever font they have chosen to view email with. And so by sending us plain text, it leaves it up to their mail client to display it. And I like to do that for folks. So I like, well, actually you do sometimes send in, in, in rich text, John, because I get like mails from you in courier sometimes, which is like, it, you know, to me, hmm. looks weird, right? I mean, that's that's what you you choose to use a, a monospaced font for your email, which is fine, man. It's you, but sometimes, not always, uh, but sometimes I get messages from you where like I'm seeing it in Courier, and hmm. it's like, huh, I wonder why. But again, it you know maybe you were replying to something or forwarding something that had some HTML elements, and so uh, it kept it that way. Could be, yeah. I mean, I like Courier because uh, I mean the, the other issue. Um, is that if the recipient doesn't have the font, the client will, the email client will do its best to find the closest match. Well, a courier is pretty much a universal font. That's what I'm saying, though. If you yeah. send in plain text, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. what font you right, right. choose to view. The person's yes. going to see it in whatever font they've chosen, right? So that's why plain text is better. Because mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want you forcing courier on me. I hate reading email and courier. Um, it's bad enough. I don't even like reading the emails that you prep for Mac geek because you print them in courier, but that's you, right? Like that's, it's, you know, I, I can't deal with plain with a uh, monospaced fonts. It just looks weird to me, huh? right. but, but that's me. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a nitpicky guy. So yeah. Uh, 
All right. You want to take us to listener John? Yes. So uh, John says, over the past year, I've been using my mobile devices much more out in the real world. Haven't we all been Zooming a bit more? As such, I've been paying more attention to my public online etiquette, including the use of VPNs. My Amplify Alien router comes with a built-in software-based teleport VPN, which promises to protect my online presence. I've been wondering how this type of VPN compares to cloud-based offerings like FreeVPN, TunnelBear, and so on. Do they offer comparable online protection? Do they work in a similar manner? I use Comcast for internet, one gig down, 40 megs up. Will this impact the speed of my connection if I use my teleport VPN versus a cloud-based VPN? Uh, obviously, I'd like to continue, continue to use my free teleport VPN as opposed to paying for a service, but if the cloud's VPN offers substantially more protection, I'll consider paying for a subscription. Um. The only downside, Dave, that I can see from a router-based VPN is that it may not mask your IP address, or at least in my case, it does not. When um, you say it doesn't mask your IP address, if you're at a coffee shop and you connect to your router-based VPN, mm -hmm. do the people, the websites that you're visiting, are you saying that they see your coffee shop IP address or your home IP address? Well, if I connect, so one the the one that I use mostly is um, uh, the uh, VPN server on the Synology on your Synology router or Synology yes disk station. Well, Synology disk station. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. Yeah, and so I did a little test as I connected to it. Well, I connected to uh, Optimum Wi-Fi. And then I connected to OpenVPN and then I went to what is my IP and it said, oh, yeah, your IP is Comcast. So, um, however. Wait, wait, wait. Slow that down. Okay. So it, 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 uh, I'll ask the question at a higher level. Were you when you went once connected to the VPN, were you seeing the VPN? Were you seeing what is my IP tell you that it was seeing your home IP address or your yes. devices? Well, of course it was because you're connecting to your home's network. And so yeah. your home network is the one that is advertising you to the outside world because you're tunneled through it. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. OK, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, so yeah. That, that's the right. point I want to make. Got it. Um, um, what do they have? And, and then I looked up the specs for the uh, uh, Amplify Teleport and yeah. it actually says it does some sort of IP masking. So that's kind of interesting. I wonder how they pull that off. Interesting. Huh. Huh. Um, so the benefit of, of the cloud-based offerings, and I have a, a couple of them, is that they give you uh, quite a bit more flexibility as to where you appear to be coming from, um, which can be useful if, um, you know, like, like yeah. sporting events and stuff like that. Uh, you know, a lot of content is restricted as to who can watch it. Like, I remember one time I was trying to get some... Uh, some uh, BBC content, and it was like, well, no, you're coming from the United States. Buzz off. And I'm like, man. <laughs> yeah, but just fire up ExpressVPN or NordVPN. Exactly. Choose that as your endpoint, and out you go. Yeah, that makes mm -hmm, sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. If, um, if listener John just wants to mask where he's coming from, though, uh, the good news is that my guess is within a month or less, we will have at least iOS 15, which will have iCloud Private Relay going, uh, and then whenever, you know, Mac OS Monterey comes out, that will also have iCloud private relay that may be within a month, but 
it might be two months, right? Because just based on Apple's, you know, history is often the best predictor of the future. So, um, but certainly within a couple of months, your devices will naturally do this for you. If all you want is to obscure your home, uh, you know, or your existing uh, IP address. So bear that in mind too. But yeah, your, your point about a third party VPN is, is solid here. There there's, there are a lot of good things about, I, I, I do the same thing. I pay for an express VPN subscription, but I also all, you know, have my, my home VPN set up on my router just because I don't know, because it, because it's there, but, but there are, there are times when I want to use someone else's VPN and not my home one. I guess those are changing. There was a period of time where when I was on a cable modem and I had, you know, limited upstream, I didn't want to use my VPN at home because I wanted more bandwidth than I had, you know, your, 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 the weakest link in the chain is now the speed of your VPN connection, right? So my, my upstream was the weakest link in my chain. Now it's not because I live in, in gigabit land. So I, I suppose I could start using my home one more. I need to think about that. That's interesting. Might be another benefit of having the, the fiber connection. Huh? All right. In, um, yeah, as far as ahead. performance, yeah. um, one thing that a VPN typically does is encrypt. I think that any device that is doing the encryption um, is going to have enough horsepower. So that that's not going to be slowing you down. If anything, it's going to be one of the pipes along the way, right? Right. For, yeah, just like I was saying. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. Yeah, encryption's not going to... The type of encryption that's being used is super efficient and, and not really mm -hmm. going to slow you down. So... I, Paul Franz actually makes a really good point uh, about iCloud Private Relay that's worth all of us remembering. He says, uh, and he is correct, Private Relay only hides the IP address for Safari. It does not cover applications like, for example, Discord. That is true unless the application is not using encrypted connections. So if the application is using HTTPS, which most of your iPhone applications are when they're connecting to their own network servers and things like that, then it just goes direct. However, if the application is still using HTTP, that will be routed through iCloud private relay in a secure tunnel so that everything is secure. And at least your local network admin can't see what's going on there. But yes, Paul friends, by and large Safari, not just, not just every web browser, but Safari is the is the thing that's um that's being protected there on on both mm -hmm. mac and and uh, ios so yeah thank you sir listener sheldon in our uh, uh live stream here at uh at live.macgeekup.com asks should i buy uh buy a new macbook pro with an m1 chip now or wait until the new macbook pro with the new chip whatever that is comes out so uh, you know, this is the age old question, right? And the, my answer, my short answer is if you need a computer today, I would buy a computer today. Are there new, you know, Apple Silicon laptops coming out? Certainly. Like I would be shocked if, if, if that never came to pass. Uh, we don't know when those are. We do know that the Apple Silicon, the M1 chip is ridiculously fast and while it's not what apple truly considers a pro i know they call it a macbook pro i'm going to talk about that in a second 
it's not really what they are considering the pro version of their their Apple Silicon. And 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 we've seen that, right, because they're not doing any, high, you know, what what we would consider high end iMacs or MacBook Pros or anything like that. The 13 inch MacBook Pro is not a pro. It never has been. The 13 inch MacBook Pro is, you know, kind of, right now it really all it is is a MacBook Air with a touch bar and a fan. Right. Th- those are the differences between the M1 Pro and the M1 Air. So if you're going to buy today, I don't know about you. I don't really care for the touch bar. It just never resonated with me. And I also really never liked my fan in my computer. So I would go with a MacBook Air. And that's, in fact, what I did. Uh, And that would be my recommendation. If you need a computer now, buy a computer now and get the M1 Air and you're going to love it. Um, If you want to wait, my guess is that before the holiday season is like in the thick of us, there might be that. We'll call it the M2 chip. I know it could be the M1X. It could be whatever else they want to call it. But uh, that next version of Apple Silicon could be out. But uh, I wouldn't. I, if you need a computer now, get a computer now. That's always going to be my advice. But thank you for the question, Sheldon. It's good stuff. I don't know. What do you think, John? Yeah. If you need one now, get one now. Yeah. Because something better is always going to come out. Always. Always. Now, it's it's funny, though, because sometimes what happens is um, some people believe that their that their purchase of a computer is what prompts Apple to come out with a new one next week. Chaos theory. I love it. (laughs) That's correct. Yeah, that's right. If you're lucky like me, then that is exactly what will happen for you. Uh, So, yeah, but uh, those M1 Airs are available on Apple's refurb store, at least were when I checked last week. So that that would be the place to buy one is go to the Apple refurb store. We'll put a link in uh, in the show notes to Apple's refurb store here so that you can uh, you can check the availability of the M1 airs uh, and, and and then go grab one. So, yeah, there you go. You want to uh, you want to take us to Louie, John? Yeah, I think I misinterpreted what happened. Well, no, he, the, there's a follow-up, which uh, I had to open the email. So okay, anyways, great. tell you what's going on here. Sounds um, good. It seems I got hacked. I have been the victim of identity theft recently, and by coincidence, I have installed Netgear Armor software on my Orbi, and I can see that my iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch are showing up with weird names uh, with a mix of Asian characters and Android phone brand. My question, where do I start? I think the Netgear is doing a good job to stop the threats now, but I definitely think I need to wipe my three devices. Any specific order? Should I consider any, my backup contaminated? Uh, So it sucks you got hacked or identity thefted. Um, uh, It could be that the names of your devices were changed for nefarious reasons. Um, But looking at something like Malwarebytes, uh, it can protect from threats, but it can't scan for viruses or malware because I don't really think that's a thing on iOS. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, so I change, you may just, uh, so I, I check the name of the device, you know, settings about a name and that, that that's what lets you name your device. Maybe that's all you need to do. But then he sent, um, uh, or restoring from a recent backup, but, um, he then sent along some sp- Screenshots. Okay. So I do not think. I think the problem is the software. Um, Bitdefender, I guess it's called here. Okay. 
because he sent me a screenshot and you you can see it or I, I don't know if you saw it in the email but uh i'm just it, a listener give, man i'm I'm just hearing what you tell me yeah so. yeah um so like it, it shows a, a a um an alert here saying new device connected to your network um xiaomi and then some i think chinese characters watch um uh, so i think the problem is that software is injecting Asian characters in here for well, some is it, dumb reason. Is it possible Bitdefender is misinterpreting what it's seeing there? I think so, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there are other things that you could download that would show you the, what what they see as the names of your devices. I think Fing Desktop might be, or the uh, not, not Fing mm -hmm. Desktop, but Fing for iOS, right, would, would scan your network and tell you what it sees. I would start looking at other things. Yeah, because it sounds to me like that that one piece of software is just like its database is corrupted for whatever reason or just misassigned for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because he shows side by side two dialogues. One I think is on the router and one is, is some other piece of software. So I think, yeah, so the software is, I mean, I've seen this every now and then. So I don't know why the software is misrendering the uh yeah. The right. The device. Right. It's just, mis yeah, it's mis misinterpreting what it's seeing. Yeah. It, yeah. This, this would not be the sign of your device being hacked, at least not in my uh, opinion. Yeah, that's right. And as Paul France mm -hmm. points out, Xiaomi is a manufacturer of cell phones. And I'm sure we're both mispronouncing that, but, you know, X-A-O-M-I. Uh, but my guess is it's seeing something that's telling it. Oh, it's this, not that. So, yeah. Uh, two more questions. One that I have an answer to and one that I think is going to be a geek challenge. And then we're on our way. Dennis writes and asks, uh, he says, as I recall, there were some reservations re regarding Synology's DSM 7.0 when it came out. Now, I now see that it's showing as available on my disk station. Are there still some concerns or am I safe to upgrade? So I've been running DSM seven on my devices since day negative one, right? I, or maybe day negative three or something. I installed the, the golden master so that I could have it to talk about here on the show before it came out and things like by and large, it works great. Uh, the biggest issue that I had, and I suppose it still could be an issue, but most of these have even been solved is with third party apps. Synology did not give, any warning to third parties that they were releasing DSM seven into the wild as a release, not as a beta and through the beta process, many things about the way packages work and the sandboxing of them that, that now exists in DSM seven that didn't really exist before was a moving target and literally was changing with every beta release. And then finally they were like, okay, yeah, this one, here's the, here's the one that's going to be released. And that changed them again. So that was the issue I ran into. My biggest part of that was Plex. Um, but but Plex has definitely solved the issue. They just needed a little time to, you know, figure out how to work with this new paradigm that Synology had sort of thrust upon the world. So short answer to your question, Dennis. Absolutely. I, I think you're fine with DSM-7. Uh, upgrade all your packages before you upgrade to DSM because 
there are some sandboxing things and Plex is a great example where the developer of the package has to change the way the package stores its own data in order to be compatible with the new restrictions that DSM seven points in pulls in. And it's way easier for the developer to do that in an automated way with DSM six, which doesn't have all those restrictions. That was sort of my problem is it was a chicken and egg. It was like, Oh, you need to make all these changes, but DSM seven doesn't let packages make these changes. So you dear reader must do them on your own. And it was this very involved, intricate process. Um, that's all fixed now. So as long as you've upgraded all your packages, then go do DSM seven and you're going to be fine. So that's my answer to that. You want to do this geek challenge, unless you have any thoughts about um, DSM seven, you want to do this geek challenge and uh, we'll call yeah, it a day. I'm getting the dialogue on both my, uh, so my, yeah. Synologies are new enough, so uh, maybe I'll pull the trigger. Yeah, I think you can pull the trigger, man. I think you'd be good. Yeah, I was just hesitant because, yeah, yeah there, there was that, you know, some packages. But, yeah, all my packages are up to date. So. And you're, yeah, then you're going to be good. Yep. All right. So, from Scott, this could be a geek challenge. Uh, I have an annoying dialogue window that mail pops up sometimes about it not being able to do a move uh message because the server isn't responding um and he sent a screenshot but that's pretty much what the dialogue says um uh the problem is that mail will not do anything until you click on okay that's fine if i'm sitting at my mac but if i'm away from it none of my rules will execute because no mail is coming in i have my mac mini up and running mail all the time in order to get mail sorted through all my different rules. I usually notice this when I see I have more than two to three emails in my inbox on my iPhone. So I go to my Mac, unlock it and look for the dialogue to dismiss it. Any idea on how to either stop these annoying dialogues, how to get my Mac to click on the OK button automatically? Um, yeah, I get that too. Every now and then I get one that says server connections interrupted. And I have to get rid of it. But the thing is, it's not because I'm connected to the server, but it, it stays up there. Um, I don't know. He's talking about mail, uh, not like a file yeah, server. Yeah, I know. Okay, different dialogue. I've just seen a similar annoying okay, got it. dialogue that okay. will go away. Um, uh, but enough about me. Um, one thought, though, it won't solve your problem immediately, would be to send some feedback to Apple regarding mail. <laughs> Um, Did that you say send while, feedback though. to Apple? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I thought they had uh, a menu in mail that would let you do this, but uh, I couldn't find it in the current version of mail. I think they got rid of it. Um, but there's a link. Uh, Apple.com slash feedback slash mail.html is where you can okay. gripe at Apple. So maybe suggest that, you know, they fix that. Um because, yeah, I mean, a, a, a modal dialogue should not um, make everything grind to a halt, but apparently it does. Yeah. yeah or a different type of dialogue would yeah. stay up there, but, you know, not make everything grind to a halt. Um, uh, but here's my thought, Dave. So standard dialogues uh, typically allow keyboard equivalents, usually escape to cancel and return for OK. So maybe creating some sort of script to do this for you. Like maybe an Apple script, um, you know, something like go to mail app, press return, wait five minutes and do it again. Um, that sounds dangerous. I wouldn't um, I wouldn't automate that. 
Yeah, yeah, like and, and uh, I'll follow up. Um, uh, now you could go to DougScripts.com. Um, maybe there's a script there that'll do this. Um, I think I don't. Looking at the dialogue he sent, I don't think I don't think there's a default of return will pass you through this. I think this is a you must click this in order yeah. to move forward because it doesn't look like the one I've seen this. It's you know the message whatever you know subject could not be moved to the mailbox subject and it's because the server mm. returned the error mailbox does not exist that's a weird error and he's getting it from his uh his mail.com or his you know his uh, icloud.com mail uh account which is bizarre but mm-hmm. that's what he's that's what he's getting it from i think i think in order to script this you would need to use something that will let you do user interface scripting um, which I think keyboard maestro will do. In fact, I know it'll do. And you can say, you know, click, move the mouse to X number of pixels to the right and X number of pixels below the, uh, you know, the corner of a window and then click. So you could get it to position the, the, you know, the, the mouse cursor there and then click it Oh, nice to move past it. Right. Like that. I mean, that is a way to do it. The question is how do we trigger this script like at what because because i think just telling things to press enter randomly or press you know to click a mouse randomly could be like at best a nuisance and at worst might wind up you know changing things for you so the question is how do you get this is there you know, is there is there a name of a window and there isn't because it's a modal dialogue, so it doesn't have a name. But, you know, is there something that that could be the 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 is there some symptom of this that could then be used as the trigger to tell keyboard maestro, go do your thing. So that that's the part I don't quite get. Maybe we'll ask Scott to post this in the forums at uh, com slash forums so you all can see the error message, too. And then. Um, you know, maybe, maybe get to, uh, get to a solution, but I, I think yeah, user interface scripting is going to be your friend on this one. That's, that's my thoughts, but I don't, I, I'm the, the trick is what's the trigger. Like that would be the, the issue. And I don't know that we have, it's, it's weird that this is happening at all. Like I, I would also want to solve this problem because why is iCloud's mail server saying mailbox does not exist. That's weird. Is it necessarily Apple's? um... Well, his screenshot is, it makes it very clear that it's coming from a Uh, me.com server. Yeah. It says mail was unable to open this mailbox on the server, you know, blah, 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 dash imap.mail.me.com. So without question, this is a, this is an iCloud issue. So so why could you replace that server with another one no you don't get to pick your iCloud server okay it, you just say that you have iCloud email and it knows which server you're on or it yeah it just picks one round robin i guess or i don't think it's like round that. robin i think your mail account is on a different iCloud server than mine i i remember that when mm. we were i was part of this business a few years ago where we were doing um calendar stuff and figuring out which caldav server an iCloud account was assigned to was an interesting little trick. We actually had to come up with a little cheat and it involved talking to the Apple engineer that 
created Caldav. So that got a little interesting. So yeah, no, I don't, I don't think you can just pick one at random. I, I think, I think it's very specific to your account, but I will say this. One thing I learned P the server names are P X X where X's are a two digit number dash. imap.mail.me.com. I believe if you use P zero one, that will work for everyone. I haven't tested that in several years though, but that was the workaround that we found at least initially for the, the calendaring thing. So Try p01-imap.mail.me.com. That might be the answer. And in fact, may solve your problem. Maybe there's a problem with whatever server Scott's assigned to. So that's what I'd try. Set it up as a IMAP only account, you know, see what happens. I don't know. That's what I got, John. But I also got the band plan because it's, uh, it's actually, I think it's really sunny outside right now. I'm, I'm getting pictures from my son who is elsewhere in the state but uh going on a skydive this morning and the, the the blue sky is a nice thing to see it was the sky was not blue when i started this episode and i have no no windows to look through here in my uh tmo towers east podcasting studio so calm hmm. before the storm perhaps yeah yeah i just got a text what does your text say, John? About the storm. Oh. Uh, fr- from the town. Uh, Tropical Storm Henry is expected locally Sunday morning. There you oh, go. Boy. Yeah. Well, hopefully by the time this episode comes out, Tropical Storm Henry has passed you, my friend, and mm-hmm. all is well. You can follow John on Twitter to learn more about his weather issues and other gripes. John F. Braun at, uh, at John F. Braun on Twitter. You can follow me at Dave Hamilton. You can follow the show at Mac Geek Cab. You can follow Pilot Pete, who is not, to my knowledge, flying the plane out of which my son is jumping at this very moment, at Pilot Pete. Uh, you can follow Mac Observer, at Mac Observer. Go subscribe to our YouTube page. We'd love you. Long time if you go over there. So go to, uh, mm-hmm. it's a Mac Geek Cab podcast on YouTube. You'll find it. Subscribe. We take little snippets of things and share them. It's actually pretty awesome. We'd love to have you over there. All right. Uh, anything else, John, before we uh, before we truly wrap this one up? Nope. Right. I'm not going to go and batten down the hatches. Batten them down, my friend. Stay safe. Have fun. Check out our sponsors. That's uh, upstart.com slash MGG for this episode. And then uh, macgeekup.com slash sponsors for all of our active and even past sponsors whose deals are still active. So that's a good resource. MacKeekup.com slash sponsor. So check it out. Good luck with the storm to all of us. And um, may, uh, may none of us get caught. See you next time. May not.